North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. Each week on this show, we'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. CSIS and the Korea Foundation are convening the annual ROK U.S. Strategic Forum on the 70th anniversary of the war. Panels will discuss how Korea can transition from mere armistice to a permanent peace, and how regional powers can achieve it. Experts and high-ranking officials will convene virtually for this unprecedented event. Session 3, Horizon, the Future of U.S.-ROK Alliance, features a discussion on what opportunities the U.S.-ROK Alliance may collaborate on in the 21st century that promote both the strength of the alliance, regional stability, and global welfare. This session will be moderated by Dr. Young Kwan Yoon, Professor Emeritus at the Seoul National University and former Minister of Foreign Affairs of the Republic of Korea. This session will feature Dr. No Hyung Park, Mr. Yunju Ko, Dr. Michael Green, and Mr. Randall Shriver. Audience, please welcome Dr. Young Kwa Yoon. Hello, I am Young Kwa Yoon, Professor Emeritus of Seoul National University. Thank you very much for watching or participating in this very timely and important conference. It is my great pleasure to moderate session three of the ROK US Strategic Forum 2020, which was organized by the Korea Foundation and the CSIS. For our discussion today on security matters and the future of the ROK-US alliance, we have a very distinguished four panelists. Each of them needs no further introduction and all of them have very extensive working experience in the field for a long time as a, uh, as, uh, as a practitioner or a researcher contributing much to the development of the U.S.-ROK alliance. We had a wonderful discussion on security matters yesterday in session one. It covered various issues like the history and the current state of ROK-U.S. alliance and the matters related to the security and peace on the Korean Peninsula including the North Korean nuclear issues. Since it covered much of the current state of the ROK-US alliance, I hope in this session, session three, we focus on the future of the ROK-US alliance, thinking about how we can upgrade and modernize our alliance so that it can fit better to the changing international situation. As many would agree, I think the ROK-US alliance has been successful in the last seven decades. It provided security, which was the most important necessary condition for economic development and democracy in South Korea. Of course, there were sometimes ups and downs in the government-to-government -government relations between two states, but we have overcome all those difficulties and the alliance has successfully promoted shared values and mutual interest. It started from it originally started from the security-focused alliance in the early 1950s in order to deter the North Korean uh, military threat. But it gradually developed into a comprehensive, uh, global-oriented, globally-oriented uh, partnership, 
which covers political, economic, diplomatic, and cultural cooperation. So now I would like to invite uh, your uh, views on how to upgrade and modernize our alliance. I know it's a rather broad subject, but what comes first in your mind when you think about this issue? First, I'd like to turn, my, turn the mic to Professor Pang No Young. Uh, thank you, Professor Yun. My idea is rather simple. There is a need for the ordinary people to have a good understanding on the alliance between the ROK and the U.S. For this purpose, the people of both countries need to be educated on the historical context of the creation of the alliance to secure peace on the Korean Peninsula. In addition, the role of the alliance for the two countries should be refined to cope with newly changing domestic and regional and international geopolitical situations. For example, one of the touchstones for upgrading and modernizing the alliance should be in how to cooperate in and through cyberspace, which was not found when the mutual defense treaty between the ROK and the US was concluded in 1953. The alliance of the two countries should be fully extended to cyberspace, which is now becoming a paramount platform for the global digital society. I'd like to speak later more on cybersecurity cooperation uh, later this, in this session. Thank you. Uh, Professor Park, I think you have made a very important point, especially your point that we need to try to refine or redefine the role of the alliance for both allies from a long-term perspective. But I sometimes get the impression that both governments are always so busy, too busy to think about a long-term, I mean, uh, from a long-term perspective and defining or redefining I mean, uh, I mean, the alliance uh, from a long-term perspective. So I think uh, we need to consider uh, and try to this, uh, I mean, read how to refine our alliance uh, from a long-term perspective rather than I mean, spending most of the time uh, focusing on I mean, immediate concerns or immediate challenges. Thank you very much. Uh, next, uh, Professor uh, uh, Michael Green, uh, Senior Vice President of the CSIS for Asia and Japan Chair. Thank you, Professor Yoon. Um, it's a real uh, privilege to be on this panel uh, led by you. And um, I also want to take this moment to thank you for all the scholarship you've brought uh, to our alliance and the leadership you brought as foreign minister at a really critical turning point uh, uh, when I was in the White House and with Victor and you were in Seoul providing real guidance for us all as you are on this panel. So I, um, I think that uh, Professor uh, Pak makes a very good point about um, informing the public, engaging the public. We have uh, vibrant democracies and it's critical that we maintain bipartisan support for our alliance and also uh, inclusion and discussion with a younger generation uh, which is why the very large audience for this um, forum is so encouraging. There is some good news in U.S. public opinion polls. Support for the U.S.-Rock alliance is at historic highs. When Americans are asked, should we defend Korea, uh, two-thirds generally say yes, which is quite high, higher than NATO. Um, and among uh, millennials and Generation X and Z, younger Americans in their 20s, uh, support for the alliance is, is, is even higher. Um, so that's a good base upon which to build, but I think Professor Pak's point is well taken. I also think uh, we have to continue, obviously, modernizing um, deterrence vis-a-vis -vis North Korea, and we have some real challenges bilaterally. Uh, the SMA negotiations are extremely contentious um, and threatening in some ways. 
to our political consensus in both countries. Um, but I have confidence we will do uh, well because we've faced these challenges before. We've been able to adjust. In the 1990s, when I first worked in the Pentagon uh, with Randy Schreiber at the time, we had to deal with the new scenario of instability in North Korea, and we developed joint planning and uh, worked it together. And then 10 years ago, we had to work with the new provocations uh, after uh, the Chunan incident and Yongpyeongdong, and we came up with a counter-provocation plan. I've worked on alliances with Japan, with Australia. Um, the Combined Forces Command, this joint and combined relationship is a treasure and an asset that has allowed us to modernize our planning and our operational relationships. And I think we'll be able to do it. So um, we've done well, and I think we'll keep doing well modernizing, despite challenges, uh, deterrence towards North Korea. Um, and in recent years, we've done very well on building a global alliance around G20, um, the, the eight effectiveness summits, the nuclear summit, in so many areas. The, the gap, and it's increasingly a geopolitical and political problem, the gap is regional security. Um, this is the donut hole in our alliance, the area which we're not talking about. If this were a conference on NATO, if this were a conference on Australia, US alliance, Japan, even the U.S.-India partnership, there would be a panel dedicated entirely to China. And in the U.S.-Korea relationship right now, we just do not have the ability to talk about the China problem effectively, despite our strong uh, deterrence cooperation on the peninsula and our global cooperation. And um, Victor and others pointed out that this is a growing problem for countries like Korea that have deep economic relationships with China, but the trend lines elsewhere are pretty clear. Australia uh, is taking a harder line on China. The new poll that came out yesterday from the Lowy Institute shows a 30-point drop in Australian trust in China. Um, the European Union has declared that they are in systemic competition with China. Um, the um, Halifax Forum uh, for the transatlantic relationship is focusing on China in its next annual meeting. Um, so... I don't agree with speakers yesterday who said this is all because Trump is hardline on China. There are aspects of the Trump administration's rhetoric and approach to China that I think are too simplistic, too overdone. But if Biden becomes president, there will be a continuation of strategic competition uh, with China and policies with alliances to deal with it. So I, I think that's the area where we have to modernize. Now, this does not mean, you, 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 you will remember, Professor Yoon, when we were in the government, um, Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld pressed Korea very hard to agree to strategic flexibility, you know, to the use of U.S. forces for contingencies off peninsula, which could involve China, obviously. And President Bush intervened and said, no, that's asking too much. I don't think that strategic cooperation on Asia and on stability in Asia and on the China question means that we immediately go to high-end warfighting scenarios. The really critical work is in, in the peacetime shaping missions. How do we convince China not to engage in coercive behavior? How do we network alliances? How do we work together? And, and that, I think, is, is, is a reasonable agenda we should talk about. And I can say more in our next round. Uh, I, I'll just conclude by saying it is ironic because at the beginning of our alliance, uh, 70 years ago, um, the U.S. was afraid of Syngman Rhee because Yi Syngman wanted to create a collective security arrangement in Asia, and the U.S. did not want to be entrapped in a war with China by the Korean government. Today, we have switched places. The U.S. is moving towards more collective cooperation in Asia, and it's the government in Seoul that's worried about being entrapped uh, in a conflict with China. But I, I do think there are ways we can we can manage this um, so that we're not putting Korea in a difficult position. And I worry that if we don't, uh, the U.S.-Korea alliance will um, be much weaker, even if we're strong on deterring North Korea, even if we're strong and global. If we can't handle regional issues, we're going to have a problem down the road. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mike, for your excellent uh, review uh, of the history of bilateral alliance uh, in the last several decades. And you also rightly uh, pointed out, I mean, the importance of the U.S. ROK cooperation on the global issues, especially uh, building, a, a building 
a norm-based international order, uh, many, I guess, uh, I mean, policymakers and uh, I mean, uh, professionals and thinkers of foreign policy in this country agree with the necessity to cooperate uh, on, uh, on how to build a norm-based international order in the future. Uh, the problem seems to be that we have a unique, very unique uh, geopolitical, I mean, dilemma, uh, which is uh, North Korea. And uh, all those countries who are more cooperative in discussing this matter with the United States, they don't have some problems like North Korea. I mean, they, they, they are not divided at all like uh, I mean, Korea. So my question to you is, will there be any other things, I mean, that the United States can help South Korea to overcome that kind of unique geopolitical dilemma? So I'll, um, I'll go into detail later, if you like, on some specific policy areas where we can cooperate. But I do think that the United States has to be, and the, and, and the, and the administration now, has to be much more uh, sensitive to the unique situation of each ally. Um, India is not an ally, but it's a partner we want to, we want to work with. India has a non-alignment tradition that we have to understand. Uh, the Korean government has to deal with North Korea, as you said. And I think we should not have a one-size-fits-all approach to, uh, to um, shaping the regional environment dealing with China. I think we should have a menu that countries can pick from and, and show some flexibility and agility. And I can go into some of those areas, but they're not necessarily military. Um, but, but I make another point, uh, if I could, Yongguan. Um, yes, Korea has a problem because of North Korea and Korea needs Chinese pressure on North Korea, Chinese help with the North Korea problem. But I would argue, and I think many Americans uh, see it this way, that if China thinks that Korea is afraid to align more closely with other U.S. allies across Asia, and if South Korea is afraid to stand up to China, is afraid um, uh, to take a strong stance for the alliance with the U.S., then China is going to be much less likely to be helpful on the North Korea problem. If China thinks that it can drive a wedge between Seoul and Washington, um, then China is going to wait um, and try to weaken the U.S.-Korea alliance and, and isolate South Korea and not take action against North Korea. But if China thinks that its actions, its behavior is causing the U.S., Korea, and Japan to cooperate more, Korea to do more in regional security than it has, um, then I think China is going to be under much greater pressure for geopolitical reasons to do something about North Korea. But if they feel like this tide of history is going to allow them to watch the U.S.-Korea alliance get weaker as China's power rises, they will be less likely. Beijing will be less likely to be helpful in North Korea. They have to be faced with a circumstance that forces choices. And um, that's not what we have right now. What we have right now is a situation where China views the U.S.-Korea alliance, and I think views it as favorable uh, in terms of the trajectory. And that makes China less willing to help us in North Korea. So I would take the conundrum you're describing and turn it around and say, precisely because uh, we need China's help in North Korea, we should be um, uh, aligned more than we have been on the China issue. Not for war fighting, not for anything like that, but, but in diplomatic and in values terms, as you put it. Thank you very much for your insights. And uh, next, uh, our speaker is uh, Director General Ko Yun-ju. Uh, he is uh, Director General uh, of the American Affairs uh, in, 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 in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Director General Ko. Yes, uh, uh, thank you, Dr. Yoon. And then I'm very pleased and honored to have uh, uh, this discussion uh, with the uh, very distinguished uh, scholars uh, the, over the uh, video. Uh, so, and then uh, I share with you uh, what the, uh, Dr. Yoon said about the, uh, our alliance, uh, how the alliance evolved and then so far. And then I'm not going to, uh, uh, you know, talk about in details about the uh, current uh, challenging issues in the, in the regional context that uh, Dr. Michael Green uh, raised. 
I think the, I reserve that kind of discussion for tomorrow's session. Uh, I think that that is a more like a proper session that I can see. So uh, today, uh, this time, I would like to more focusing on the kind of a general description of the how, uh, where we are, the uh, future, the alliance uh, should go. Uh, on that context, I think the, uh, my, my question is, uh, question lies how to, uh, you know, how to see the, uh, the, the future direction of the alliance. I think this kind of question is the, uh, the everyday, uh, you know, the question that I have to deal with, uh, with my colleagues and uh, when I am uh, working for the North American issues. So I think the, uh, when it comes to the, uh, my uh, you know, core you know, assumption or core essence of the uh, future direction of the alliance is, is to enhance, further enhance our alliance partnership. That is, uh, that is uh, my assumption and my, my essence of the, uh, the, that efforts that Korean government is, is pursuing for the uh, alliance for future. So the, in, in that context, uh, when it comes to the, uh, uh, the partnership for the peace and security of the Korean Peninsula, if we look at the uh, you know, alliance uh, direction for future, uh, I think the everybody, uh, I, I believe everybody uh, agree that Korea should play a leading role in those issues, in the Korean Peninsula issues especially for the peace and security of the Korean Peninsula. This is a kind of a one direction that we have to pursue as an alliance uh, for, for, for the uh, better partnership uh, on, that, on that issue. So in that uh, context, in that sense, I think the, uh, I would like to mention uh, briefly about the uh, upcoming transition that currently we are undergoing. As you know, the uh, condition, conditions-based upcoming transition was uh, agreed between two governments uh, in 2015, uh, November, you know, SCM meeting uh, between two uh, defense ministers. And then follow on uh, when the, our, the President Moon administration is sworn in uh, in 2017, uh, both governments uh, agreed to uh, facilitate the, those process for the condition-based transition. So, so far uh, we have, uh, we finished the initial operation uh, capability, uh, you know, assessment uh, last year, and then this year we are planning to have a second stage of the uh, combined forces, uh, combined uh, forces command uh, assessment for full operation uh, capabilities. I think the uh, that is not scheduled yet, but I believe uh, both uh, uh, defense, you know, the ministries will, you know, agree uh, the, you know, that kind of, uh, you know, assessment process later this year. And then, you know, based on the outcome transition, you can see the, uh, our defense budget increase uh, every year, you know, the 7.5% on average since 2017, and accounting for 2.6% of GDP uh, for our defense. Uh, this is, uh, I think, I think the much more than the, uh, the average on Japan and the other the European countries. And also, you know, uh, based, on the up, based on the upcoming conditions based, I mean, the, the conditions increase a lot. I mean, there is a core, you know, capabilities of the Korean military, you know, which can uh, play a leading role in defense of a combined posture. And also, you know, alliance, uh, you know, combined uh, defense posture that can, you know, that fend up uh, North Korean nuclear missile threat. And those kinds of conditions requires our, you know, much more, uh, you know, spending on the military budget, also, you know, purchasing the weaponry uh, systems. The mainly our, you know, our, our government is, you know, purchasing a huge amount of the, uh, the United States weaponry system, which can, you know, contribute to the, uh, our defense, you know, the combined defense posture uh, by uh, increasing interoperability of the uh, weaponry systems. So those are the kind of uh, things that the uh, enhanced partnership uh, for the, uh, the leading role of the Korean, uh, Korean on the Korean Peninsula issue. That is uh, one area that the, how we enhance our partnership. The other area that I can you know, see is the, uh, more related to the, uh, the cooperation uh, beyond the Korean Peninsula. I think in that case, uh, uh, United States have an uh, Indo-Pacific strategy. Korea have a uh, new southern policy. So uh, two presidents, uh, when they, uh, they met uh, last June, uh, June uh, last year, 
uh, they, uh, our president mentioned that the uh, Korean government is pursuing harmonious uh, cooperation uh, between two initiatives, I mean, our new Southern policy and the United States Indo-Pacific strategy. I mean, based on that statement, we, uh, as a government officials, I mean, the two uh, government officials follow up to those in uh, those statements, then we adopted a joint fact sheet on the cooperation between New Southern Policy and Indo-Pacific Strategy last November. And also we adopted a joint statement for that, co that cooperation. This year, uh, our working level officials uh, continue to consult uh, to devise uh, the mechanism and the, uh, coordinate uh, the, uh, the joint project that uh, which can, you know, uh, contribute to the uh, capacity building in the ASEAN countries. This is, uh, I think, the, the one area that we can, you know, enhance partnership for the future uh, alliance. Uh, that, that partnership is go beyond the uh, Korean Peninsula. This is, uh, this is one area that I can, I can you know, tell you. And uh, the more specifically, I mean, I'd like to uh, mention two uh, uh, the areas, specific areas that we can our alliance can, you know, cooperate in, uh, the, for future. Uh, one is that global uh, health uh, security. I mean, global health security requires, you know, the uh, openness and transparency. Uh, because as we have seen the uh, COVID-19 response, I mean, the Korean government, uh, many, you know, everybody uh, speaks highly of the Korean government and response to COVID-19. Uh, why they, uh, they praise the Korean government response is that Korean government policy or response is, is highly based on the uh, transparency and openness and the democracy. I mean, those kind of uh, principles and values are United States and Korea are sharing together. So alliance, uh, which can, you know, handle, tackle the, uh, the pandemic uh, very effectively because the alliance is based on trust and uh, trust and trusteship and those pandemic issues uh, requires uh, the uh, international world, you know, very detailed, very uh, faithful trust, trust. So in that sense, I think the global health uh, security is one specific area of uh, future cooperation between Korea and the United States. And also two, two governments uh, show the, uh, a lot of good practices when we uh, address the uh, COVID-19 cases. We uh, shared a lot of information, detailed information, and also we uh, helped each other for personal protection equipments, and also we helped each other testing kits and many things. So based on those uh, practices, we can develop the uh, international governance system of global health security. I think that is one uh, specific area that we can, you know, we can uh, work together. And the other one is that uh, I believe the, uh, the space industry, I mean, that, that the space area is a very much a promising uh, area of cooperation for two countries, because as I said before, alliance requires uh, or and based on the uh, strong trust for each other. So uh, usually uh, so far the space issue is very much related to the sensitive technology. So United States have a very strong bilateral and global you know, non-proliferation policies regarding the uh, space development of te technologies. So those kind of uh, uh, non-proliferation policies are, is, is kind of uh, beco becoming an obstacle for Korea to uh, engage with the, uh, the cooperation with the United States. So. Uh, since we have seen, and we, since we have over more than 70 years, around the, more than 67 years of alliance, we have, you know, evolved our alliance into the future-oriented, you know, corporations. In that case, space is the one area that every time we have, a, you know, presidential meeting and there is a joint statement, every time in, in the joint statement we mention about the uh, space uh, the cooperation as a new frontier of uh, alliance cooperation. So uh, I think that this is a time uh, for us to move forward uh, with the uh, uh, space industry cooperation uh, for the uh, future new frontier of uh, alliance. I think let me stop here and then I look forward to uh, following discussions. Thank you. Thank you very much, Director General Cole. Um, for succinctly explaining uh, Korean government's vision for the 
ROKUS Alliance uh, for the future. Uh, after listening to your uh, presentation, uh, let me focus one specific issue, which I think is probably uh, uh, more important issues than any other. That is a uh, transition of op wartime opcon, I mean, wartime operational control issue. It's, uh, please uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I've got a general in, uh, impression uh, that there are two, I mean, I mean, I mean, conflicting uh, things uh, here. One is um, uh, Korean government's uh, desire uh, to be an equal partner and take a more active role in providing security uh, uh, to the uh, Korean Peninsula. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I mean, it takes time to prepare conditions for transition of the OPCON, uh, I mean, uh, wartime OPCON. And these two things seem to conflict uh, in some sense. And I, I'm wondering whether we can find an optimal balance between these two. Uh, I mean, between two governments, the, the United States and South Korea. Uh, and uh, our next speaker is a uh, uh, former uh, Assistant Secretary of Defense uh, for Indo-Pacific uh, Security Affairs, uh, uh, Mr. Randall Schreiber, please. Yes, uh, good morning to my colleagues in the United States. Good evening to uh, friends in Korea. I appreciate the opportunity to participate in this forum again. Uh, so thank you to CSIS and the Korea Foundation. Um, good news and bad news. The good news is I agree with uh, just about everything Dr. Green said, which makes me feel confident that I'm on the right track uh, as he's uh, probably the, the greatest strategic thinker of, of my generation. Um, bad news is we didn't coordinate beforehand and he said just about everything I was going to say. Uh, so uh, I'll, I'll be very brief here um, and, and rather than repeat what Mike said, I, I just want to amplify a, a couple points. Um, I, I've often said that the alliance went global before it went regional and that the donut hole is, as Mike described it is um, very noticeable, but it but it is going to become a, a bigger omission over time and will not impact the uh, the, the warmth of the relationship or the uh, uh, capabilities per se, uh, but it will uh, threaten the relevancy uh, of the alliance going forward if if not addressed. Uh, and I say that because the uh, the China challenge, I, I, and I can say from the Department of Defense point of view where I just came from, uh, the China challenge is the primary focus and has become the organizing principle for the entire defense enterprise. Uh, it affects everything uh, that the Pentagon does, whether that's uh, future investments, acquisition strategies, uh, force structure of the joint force, future force posture, uh, how we uh, think about alliances and partnerships and capacity building, how we operate, uh, whether that be freedom of navigation operations or other displays of, of presence in the region. So it's, it's hard for me to see uh, this not impacting the relevance of the alliance, or at least in the thinking of uh, the, the alliance partners in Washington, uh, if this omission isn't addressed over time. I think another important point Mike made uh, relates to what may happen in the future, a new administration. And my view is, uh, although a, a dramatic change in uh, rhetoric and style and tone and a very unconventional approach from this president and aspects of the China policy being um, a radical departure from the past, I think use of tariffs uh, and the like. But in fact, in the, in the uh, security area and in the defense area, I, I believe our policies are more evolutionary than revolutionary. And if you look at the uh, pivot or rebalance, I'm not sure they ever decided what it was. Uh, but if you look at the core aspects of the Obama administration's uh, move into the Indo-Pacific, the importance of the region, a place of uh, priority, the uh, interest in strengthening partners and alliances with a particular purpose in mind to support uh, a free and open international order, I mean, those are all uh, uh, 
principles and, and uh, aspects that were carried over into the Trump administration, the, the difference in style notwithstanding, the rebranding notwithstanding. And I think the, the same would be true uh, going forward in, in, a, in a Biden administration, if there is one, or, or a, a future administration at some point. Uh, because the center of gravity has really changed in, in the public in the United States. The recent Pew poll, 66% uh, of Americans now have a, a very negative view of China and are concerned about uh, China's behavior. Um, but, but really at the core, it's, it's, a, it's a structural shift in the, in the power hierarchy. It's uh, China's uh, uh, departure from the traditional Deng Xiaoping hide-and-bide strategy and, they, and, and, and uh, more assertive behavior, more willingness to accept friction, uh, et cetera. So I, I, I don't see this as a, a, a Trump uh, uh, policy only. And I, I, again, I think for our alliance to maintain relevance, which I think we all want, we've got to th start thinking about regional challenges. Um, but I'm very mindful of the earlier comments about uh, forcing binary choices and and uh, the risks associated with that. And so I, I, I do think there are ways to frame uh, cooperation in the region, and there's ways to, uh, I think Mike used the term, a menu of options uh, so that we can grow uh, more comfortable cooperating on these issues. Um, we always said at the Department of Defense, we don't go to countries and say, uh, we want you to choose between Washington and Beijing, the United States and China, uh, but can you choose support for uh, your own sovereignty? Can you choose support for supporting international law and norms? Can you choose to support uh, peaceful dispute resolution? If you can choose those things, then we're confident you'll be on sides um, uh, because our, our purpose in the United States is, is not to seek territory, not to seek um, uh, the diminishment of, of uh, even our, our strategic competitor. It's to uphold a, a particular uh, regional and global order, particularly where the regional and global commons are concerned. So I, I think there are ways to frame it in ways that may be more comfortable uh, for our alliance partners and, and, um, and uh, other emerging partners, and, and, and we can focus our activities uh, as such as well. Um, the, uh, the last thing I would say is, and this sort of circles back to modernizing the alliance, that will over time start to, to impact capabilities. And I think the things that have already been raised, cyberspace, uh, these are all areas that um, the, the China challenge will need to invest in. So again, if, if we're identifying this as uh, modernization priorities for other reasons, you know, that's, that's fine. I think that complements what ultimately we need to do in terms of our regional, uh, regional cooperation. So, like I said, I, I, a lot of what I might have said, uh, Mike covered, and so I just wanted to amplify a few of those points and, and uh, uh, look forward to any uh, questions or discussion. For, I mean, the comments, and uh, I don't know whether this is a response to you or uh, Mike again, but my impression is that uh, South Korean government's position on this issue cannot be separated from the North Korean nuclear issue uh, in the sense that uh, we, most Koreans, uh, yearn for living in a peaceful condition uh, with, uh, with North Korea, if not a peaceful unification in the later period. And if we cannot satisfy that kind of, uh, I mean, desire or cherished, I mean, desire for Korean people, uh, I mean, South Koreans uh, cannot but be considering China factor. Uh, and uh, I mean, in order to, I mean, uh, help uh, South Korea, uh, to be free to be uh, to be free from that concern, I think the U.S. can do something in terms of uh, I mean North Korea uh, nuclear policy. What I'm saying is, instead of uh, taking very uh, orthodox uh, approach on denuclearization, for example, you denuclearize first, and then we will provide everything. 
instead of that kind of approach, I think the U.S. can be more flexible and pragmatic and uh, engage North Korea into continued uh, negotiation and dialogue. Uh, in that way, uh, I think probably the U.S. may be able to find a way to embrace North Korea on the condition that North Korea will uh, definitely denuclearize itself. Uh, but the current situation is, is, is not developing that way. So that makes South Korean position very difficult. Uh, I mean, uh, so, uh, I mean, again, I think this issue cannot be uh, separated from the North Korean nuclear issue. I mean, why don't we discuss later? Now, I'd like to turn my mic to uh, Professor Pang Noi Hung. And my question to you is, uh, what a new frontier issue would you uh, pick up uh, if you, uh, I mean, if we want to uh, strengthen or upgrade uh, our alliance for the future and how we can promote, I mean, uh, corporate, mutual cooperation uh, in that specific issue area. Uh, thank you, Professor Yun. Uh, before, yes, I'd like to choose cybersecurity issues for the alliance between the ROK and the U.S. Uh, but before moving to that discussion, uh, if allowed, I'd like to discuss, I mean, say something briefly on uh, the issue of forcing binary choices between I mean, China and the U.S. I think if we look at a general or a bigger picture of international society and the rules making in the internet society, especially relating to cybersecurity and digital trade, trading data, cross-border uh, flows of data. I think the after China finds the importance of the international rules, uh, China is, has been making kind of uh, law fail, legal law fail. So I think in the end, ultimately, uh, the two superpowers agreed to international uh, agreement, I mean, real agreement on those new issues, I mean, cyber sovereignty, data sovereignty, then I think there will be less pressure on uh, choosing a binary, I mean, centers in the international Order. Uh, now I'd like to move to the discussion of cybersecurity cooperation between uh, the ROK and the U.S. And as we know, the, the ROK and the U.S. are one of the most advanced uh, states in ICTs, information and communications technologies. And as a result, the two countries are most vulnerable to uh, malicious cyber operations. And thus, there are a lot of uh, cooperation issues on economic, political, military, and legal uh, issues. And I'd like to suggest the following two points. First, cyberspace, a newly found a recognized domain is now agreed to, to be, be applied, applied by the existing international law, including the UN Charter. Nevertheless, there still exists disagreements on the application of the particular rules of international law, such as the international humanitarian law or uh, law of armed conflict, and the right to self-defense as provided in Article 51 of the UN Charter and also countermeasures to be imposed on internationally wrongful acts. In this respect, I'd like to suggest that the ROK and the U.S. may cooperate on the application of international law to cyberspace. Then one of the practical issues may be 
the application of the right to self-defense in general and the collective defense in particular. For example, NATO allies agreed that a serious cyber attack could trigger the invocation of Article 5 of the North Atlantic Treaty, uh, which provides that an armed attack against one ally is to be regarded an attack against all. Thus, cyber defense is now the part of NATO's uh, core task of collective defense. In addition, in April last year, Japan and the U.S. agreed that their mutual security treaty would cover serious cyber attacks against both countries. Likewise, the ROK and the U.S. need to confirm their understanding that their mutual defense treaty would cover cyber attacks invoking collective defense. So the provision on collective defense against traditional armed attacks should be reinterpreted in the context of cyber. The three countries, the US, the ROK, and Japan, in cooperation with the NATO, could cooperate in developing the thresholds of cyber attacks, which may be equivalent to traditional armed attacks. Second, I'd like to suggest that the ROK and the U.S. should practically cooperate by conducting public attributions of serious malicious cyber operations together. A group of those like-minded countries such as the U.S., the U.K., Australia, recently made public attributions by blaming a particular country as responsible for serious malicious cyber incidents like uh, WannaCry ransomware and NotPetya ransomware. Attribution is identifying responsible perpetrators for malicious cyber operations. Public attribution as a course of action to malicious cyber operations may be a good tool of deterrence against malicious cyber operations. On 23rd September 2019, last year, 27 UN member states, including the US, the ROK, and Japan, made the joint statement on advancing responsible state behavior in cyberspace, where they stressed, quote, when necessary, we will work together on a voluntary basis to hold states accountable when they act contrary to this framework of responsible state behavior in cyberspace as being developed in the UN, including by taking measures that are transparent and consistent with international law. There must be consequences for bad behavior in cyberspace, unquote. Thus, the ROK, as one of the states making this joint statement, should join such public attributions to hold those states committing malicious cyber operations accountable under international law in cooperation with the U.S., which has unparalleled attribution capabilities. The capability for plausible public attribution is a precondition for international cooperation in cyberspace. Thank you. Thank you very much. I think you raised uh, important I mean, issues. Uh, uh, it was uh, very interesting for me to hear your recommendation that uh, both the U.S. and South Korea uh, should confirm the understanding uh, that I mean, uh, defense alliance between two countries covers cyber attacks. Are there, I mean, much, uh, uh, I mean, uh, enthusiasm, I mean, among policymakers in both countries on that issue, on that specific issue these days? But as I, suggest, as I said, uh, there are at least two uh, presidents who are uh, 
in the NATO and also between Japan and the U.S. So I think uh, between the ROK and the U.S., there should be a kind of uh, the understanding on cyber attacks in the context of the mutual defense treaty between the two countries. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Tata Ko, I mean, I mean, Director General Ko, I mean, uh, you mentioned uh, uh, the issue of cooperation in space. And we concluded a framework agreement in that issue area three years ago. Uh, was there much progress I mean, in that issue area? Uh, I think the, uh, we have the, uh, the framework agreement with, between Korea and the United States uh, some years ago, and then that is a kind of uh, uh, the legislative uh, framework that we can work together. But based on that, there is uh, some communications uh, took place between uh, two governments uh, the, uh, dealing with that the space, space issue. And there is uh, some, you know, the cooperation is ongoing, but that kind of cooperation is very much uh, rudimentary. Uh, for example, uh, Korea Aerospace uh, uh, Research, uh, Research Institute, CARI and NASA, they, they have uh, uh, some, you know, projects uh, uh, working together, but mainly they are at the, the planning level. And then Korean, you know, the, uh, the uh, industry of the uh, government, you know, industry, they have a plan for, you know, the launch, uh, launch 104 satellites, uh, various satellites by 2040 uh, uh, by using the, our, you know, our developed the, uh, uh, civilian space launch vehicles. But for that, uh, for that, the satellite, we need uh, some, uh, some parts from the United States that is very much sensitive parts that is uh, prohibited for the international trade uh, on arms controls, ITAR uh, regulations. Uh, so, so those kind of, uh, you know, non-proliferation non related regulations are becoming, you know, kind of obstacle for uh, Korean industry to uh, engage in uh, positively with the uh, United States industries. So in that sense, I think the alliance is, is as I said before, is based on the trust and you know the, uh, and the confidence. So, based on that, I think the uh, certain you know areas of uh, you know sensitive uh, industry, uh, we need the uh, based on the alliance spirit. We need to work together to you know allocate uh, scarce uh, resources more efficiently to uh, better for mutual you know benefits of the uh, the country. That that's the point. Okay, thank you. Um, yeah. We have only a few minutes left. Uh, briefly, I mean, Michael, would you make final comments on the issues that we talked so far? Sure, thank you. I thought all the comments were very um, helpful and very concrete. <clears throat> um, and I, I want to uh, applaud Director General Ko for his efforts um, and Weigobu's efforts to align uh, the new South Southern policy with the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy. Um, I think that's absolutely critical. Um, I hope we'll see more than just symbolic um, joint projects. Um, we need concrete cooperation. So for example, I've spent a lot of time in Southeast Asia the past few years. Um, in countries like uh, Cambodia, uh, Mongolia, Myanmar, where I've been, um, Koika is doing wonderful work um, and uh, it, it, very active on things like women's empowerment, civil society building. But um, when the U.S. ambassador meets with like-minded ambassadors to, to deal with democracy and human rights challenges, the Korean ambassador often stays out, uh, is invited, but stays out. The Canadians go, the British go, the Australians, the Japanese. Korea as a powerful democracy, as, in many ways as a model of democratic transition to countries like Myanmar, should be more actively involved. Um, in Vietnam, the US, Australia, Japan have provided um, uh, non-lethal uh, Coast Guard type capabilities, patrol boats, um, so did Korea. But Korea did it completely through direct commercial sales with no coordination with the US or Australia or Japan. So, so if we align, then those things should be done strategically and not surprising each other. And that would be a, a, a success for what Director General Ko is trying to do. Um, I think the area where we're going to have to really cooperate uh, better is uh, controlling sensitive technology and especially 5G. 
Um, I think the U.S. Commerce Department <coughs> um, uh, uh, export control rules are too much. The extraterritoriality against Samsung or others, in my view, is too much. Is a, is is too much. On the other hand, <coughs> um, TSMC in Taiwan is now going to shift a significant amount of their um, uh, uh, seven nanometer fabrication production to the United States. Uh, Japan has already moved in that direction. So Samsung and Korea are increasingly the outliers among U.S. allies and partners. Um, and we have to move beyond the current dynamic, which is the U.S. kind of says, do what we say. And then the Korean side says, leave us alone. We need China for North Korea. It's too simplistic. What we, what we really need is for Korea as an advanced technology country to be a central part of shaping a new technology control regime in the world. It should not just be Japan or, um, or France or Britain. Korea has to be central in that. So we have to really start a new kind of strategic dialogue on technologies that we don't have right now. Thank you very much. Um, lastly, um, uh, Secretary Schreiber, uh, one of the audience asked a question to you. Uh, would you mind if I lead this question to you directly? Uh, for Mr. Randy Schreiber, you were part of the core negotiating team for the Singapore summit. What was that like? Bolton's book says that he was unhappy with the teams falling into North Korea's trap. Do you agree? Can I, can I just make one uh, comment before answering that question in terms of a last thought about modernizing the alliance? Um, the uh, the author Lewis Carroll has a scene in Alice in Wonderland where she's asked for directions and and the uh, Cheshire cat says, well, where are you going? And she says, well, I don't know. And he says, well, then any road will get you there. So I think before we start talking about uh, particular capabilities, cyberspace and all these things, which I think we need to do, we need to know where we're headed and we need to have frank conversations about the future of the alliance. You can't really do strategy unless you have shared uh, vision for desired outcomes, and you can't really train, equip, and do all the other things unless you, you know where you're going. You can do it, but it, it'll be detached from, uh, it, it, it threatens to be attached, detached from your, your core security interests out into the future. Um, so Ambassador Bolton uh, has written a very lengthy book and can speak for himself if that's his, his view. Um, I, I think what, I, I try to remind people from that period um, we weren't, before Singapore, engaged in uh, denuclearization talks. We had about 10 days to produce a summit statement. A summit statement is very different than what Ambassador Hill was involved in and, and Victor and Mike supporting all those efforts, um, where you had uh, a group of technical experts supported by diplomats and, and other subject matter experts trying to to develop a roadmap to denuclearization and trying to come up with an agreement that would uh, put the elements of that roadmap in, in place and, and have both sides uh, sign a document. We were working on a summit statement. We had about 10 days to do it. And so uh, we thought it was important that Kim Jong-un put his name down to something. After all, this was an unprecedented meeting, an unprecedented opportunity. And for the first time, we had the opportunity to get uh, the North Korean leader himself on paper committing to something that all the previous agreements uh, before the Trump administration uh, were government to government agreements, but not necessarily with the signature in ink from the, the leader himself. So uh, what we came up with may not have been as concrete and, and um, uh, as binding as, as people might, might've liked, uh, but in fact, it achieved what, what we sought out to do in, in terms of getting the leader on record committed to doing some things. Um, obviously, the, what, what happened subsequent to that uh, and the failure for even uh, a modest amount, a modest attempt at implementation uh, shows that, uh, you know, even if the agreement had been more specific, stronger, different, I, I think we end up in the, in the same place. Um, uh, and I think the... Uh, Efforts of the Trump administration uh, certainly open to criticism and critique, um, but I think there was, uh, I, I think the president was absolutely genuine in his commitment in trying to reach a deal. 
uh, more flexible, um, uh, Professor Yoon, than I think you described uh, in terms of asking for everything up front before we do anything. That, that wasn't my experience as, an, as a part of the negotiating team. Uh, but it was sincere, genuine interest in trying to solve a problem, and uh, it just it takes two to tango, that's, and that's where we are. Okay, thank you very much. I think uh, we had very, uh, very productive and stimulating discussion. Especially, I think this session was successful in highlighting one of the most important issues uh, in, in trying to strengthen and upgrade uh, our uh, bilateral alliance. Thank you very much all, thank you. If you have a question for one of our experts about the impossible state, email us at impossiblestate at csis.org. If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. We're now also streaming on Spotify, so you can find us there too, where you find all your music. How cool is that? And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Impossible State.